you know, something that is really hard to appreciate now that we're in this, um, at, for the moment, golden age, although I think it's becoming a bit tarnished of streaming, um, that there was a time when you had three choices. You had ABC, CBS, and NBC, and maybe PBS if you were a nerd. And, and that, that was it. And so, you know, 20 million people on an average night would watch uh, a sitcom, and then we'd all be talking about it the next day. That doesn't really exist at this moment. Hi, this is Andrew. So as some of you might know, I've been such a fan of the Gay and Lesbian Review bi-monthly magazine of history, culture, and politics that publishes essays in a wide range of disciplines, as well as a slew of reviews of books, plays, and movies, and a number of special features, such as artist profiles and the popular art memo column. Did you know we actually had two of the writers on the Ivory Tower Boiler Room podcast, Ignacio Darnad and Vernon Rosario? So if you haven't, make sure you listen to those episodes. Each GNLR issue brings you consistently intelligent, lively, thought-provoking articles focused on a unifying theme and brings together the leading minds on the topic. You won't find a lot about the latest dating fads or fashion trends, though you might find articles about online dating as a social phenomenon, like Grindr, which I have some experience with, or the gay influence on 20th century fashion. Now, for a special offer. When you subscribe to the GNLR, you'll receive a free copy with any print or digital subscription. That's seven instead of six. Visit glreview.org. That's G-L-R-E-V-I-E-W.org. Click subscribe and enter promo code ITBR for your free issue. And as an added bonus, you'll receive online access to all archived issues of the magazine. Enjoy your reading. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. This is Andrew, and this is going to be really fun because it's the first time I have another podcaster where you all have to switch and listen to the different podcasts. So get ready. Um, I have been following my guest, Matt Baum, for, I would say, I don't know, two years. It feels like a while since I've known him on the Instagram space and then his YouTube channel, of course. But let me introduce you all to Matt and his universe. He is a writer, a podcaster, a video maker. He is zooming in from Seattle. He works on queer culture, geeks, all things strange and wonderful, which, you know, I'm excited about. Uh, he's the creator of the queer interview show, The Sewers of Paris, the YouTube pop culture series, Culture Cruise, the LGBTQ news shows, Weekly Debrief and Marriage Newswatch. Um, he has a new book coming out soon called Hi, Honey, I'm Homo. Actually, as this is premiering, 
it's probably only a few weeks away. So pre-order it. Um, and we'll dig into that, I'm sure, Matt. Also, uh, he was nominated for a GLAAD Award for Journalism, which is amazing. He also has written for Rolling Stone, Vice Magazine, Slate, The Advocate, The Stranger, and NPR. Okay, so here is Matt. Hi, Matt. Hi. Wow, that's so much. I saw, You make me sound so busy. Well, I think you are. I'm sure your calendar is really scheduled. Um, oh, booked, uh, booked and busy. Yeah, so... Um, well, first, how many people say that your last name instantly reminds them of L. Frank Baum? Or... I've heard it many a time. As far as I can tell, no relation, absolutely no connection whatsoever. But I mean, you know, I've been called worse. I'm in good company. No, L. Frank Baum is good. Yeah. I mean, he doesn't have the E at the end of his name like you do. So yes. uh, distant cousin. <laughs> distinguishes me. Yes, yes, you're distinguished. But I want to know right away, just... um. Let's go with your YouTube show, because in preparation to talk to you, I mean, that's really my first introduction to your work. And I'm sure so many of your audience is through your YouTube. And then they discover the sewers of Paris, like through your LGBTQ pop culture personality. Um, and seven years ago, is that how long it's been since the YouTube series? Yeah, that sounds about right. Um, I've been doing well. So I've been making YouTube videos for a long, long time, but really focusing on the pop culture and telling stories about the making of iconic TV and film like that's been probably seven ish years. I think that's that's about right. Well, and what inspired that first video about traditional marriage? Because I like you see this picture of Adam and Eve and it's like contesting what is traditional marriage. So how did that all originate? Yeah, so I think that's the one that's probably the oldest on my channel right now. So I've, I've done others, but um, that one's about, you know, what what is the true definition of traditional marriage and how is this different from what people might assume, particularly people who uh, want to limit <laughs> who can be included in that. Um, I've been making YouTube videos for, gosh, even longer than that. Um, I started around 2007 or so when the prop eight measure was on the ballot in California, which was a thing that limited marriage equality, you know, the same sex couples had it and then prop eight took it away. Around that time, I just started making videos with my partner about why marriage was important and interviewing couples who wanted to marry about why that mattered to them. And that blossomed into covering marriage equality from a lot of different angles. I was pretty busy with that. I would do a weekly update about what was happening with all the legislation state to state. And I became a part of the Prop 8 trial. I was part of the team that took the trial all the way to the Supreme Court. And then we we won. So great. And then after that, I was like, OK, now what? Uh, I have a background in film and media production. That's really like my passion is storytelling and entertainment and, you know, the, the movies and TV that shaped our lives. And I'm really fascinated by the behind the scenes story, particularly as it connects to our queer history. So I started making a mix of videos that were a little bit about marriage, a little bit about pop culture. And over time, I got more and more focused on really where I got started uh, back before the marriage stuff even happened, uh, focused more and more on the, the movies and TV that, that shaped our lives. So, well, I know you went to Emerson College. I did my investigative reporting. Uh, I think you grew up in Connecticut. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, you really dove into, uh, the, into the background. But um, 
Well, now I, I'm out on Long Island for nine years. I'm mm-hmm. from New Jersey, but, you know, Northeast, uh, mm-hmm. the Northeastern uh, person is always indebted in my heart. <laughs> uh, it's a certain culture. Um, but yeah, what's so interesting is did all of that then coincide with the book that you wrote, Defining Marriage, where you did almost oral narrative mm-hmm. testimonials? Um about those yeah. who were going to get married? So that came out, I think, around 2015 or so. It was just when the marriage ruling happened. Mm-hmm. And so I'd been working on the Prop 8 case and involved in marriage equality so heavily, meeting all the people who were involved, whether they were plaintiffs in a case or just folks who wanted, you know, were waiting for their opportunity. And there were so many great stories. So I started to put together, you know, the, the best stories that I heard. And that's what became the book, Defining Marriage. Uh, it's, you know, takes you through the whole history for the last... 50 or so years, um, the personal stories of the folks behind the scenes who fought for the right to have their relationships recognized. And it says, you know, it tells the story from earliest beginnings in the 1970s up through when it was legalized. And at the time, about seven or eight years ago that I wrote the book, it seemed like, okay, we did it. We won. All done. And what I've really come to appreciate over the last few years is Boy, I, our our work is never done. Uh, liberation is not something that uh, is completed. It's a, it's an ongoing project. Well, so who are some of your favorite testimonials? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think Dan Savage makes an appearance. Yeah, um, he's everywhere. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he's you know, if you're if you're writing something gay, you got to talk to Dan. Um, but I think probably my favorite story is this woman who is not too well known, but she's just incredible. Her name is Cleela Rorex. And she was a clerk, a young clerk, early 20s in, I believe, Boulder, Colorado in the 1970s. She had just been elected. In fact, she ran for office. She didn't plan to, but she ran for office because she went to a political organizing committee where all the men were saying that they couldn't possibly run a woman for this role. And she was like, well, I'll show you. And so she ran. She won. And she was only a few, I think, weeks into the job when, and you know, bear in mind, this is the mid-1970s. Two men walk into her office and they say that they want a marriage license. And to her incredible credit, she said, I don't see why not. And so she issued it to them, caused a huge national outcry. And people were freaking out about it. And eventually uh, it was the license wasn't validated. But that really elevated the conversation and got people talking about it way before it really became a, a mainstream debate in the 90s. It was, you know, all over the place. But way back in the 1970s, she got Kalila and those two guys got folks talking about it. And she remained involved in social justice her entire life. Yeah, well, and I mean, I hope this isn't a flipping question, but especially now learning that you were on the Prop 8 committee. Um, and is this when you were living in Los Angeles, I'm assuming? It started when I was in San Francisco. There was actually uh, the thing that really radicalized me was that I saw a picture of the couples who um, so the the, it's complicated legally. But basically, the California Supreme Court allowed same sex couples to marry for a brief window. And in that window, there was this picture on the front page of the San Francisco Chronicle that showed couples celebrating in the Castro. And it was such a beautiful moment. And I remember thinking that someone was going to try to take that away. And that really motivated me to do what I could to stop them. And so that's how I got started in San Francisco on marriage equality. Then the Prop 8 um, 
the folks involved in the lawsuit uh, were all in Los Angeles. So my partner and I moved down there to work on the on the case. And then after we won, uh, you know, I was like, okay, great. Where to now? And uh, Seattle, Seattle called to me. So that's where I landed. Yeah. Well, so my flipping question mm -hmm. is, there were so many straight allies, especially Hollywood celebrities that came out for Prop 8. I just remembered the Jenners and the Kardashians and the like duct tape. And it became even like Bravo TV with the housewives. Um, it was everywhere, of, which was great to show that allyship. Do you think that that allyship is still as strong when it comes to what we've seen now with like anti-drag and going against transgender um, issues? Like, do you think they're showing up in the same space that they did for Prop 8? I wish I wish I could say yes, but I don't think so. And I think there are a lot of reasons for that. I think one of them is that we're very fortunate with Prop 8 to have a lot of folks who are already very embedded in pop culture who were involved in that. Uh, the lawsuit, one of the people leading it was Dustin Lance Black. Another one of them uh, was Rob Reiner and his wife, Michelle, and so and uh, Bruce Cohen. So there were folks who were really Hollywood insiders who were helping to move the case forward and raise the money. Uh, obviously, it wasn't exclusively them. They, I'm not saying by any stretch of the imagination, they deserve all the credit, but um, they were important behind the scenes and they helped to move other folks in pop culture. And one of the reasons that I think looking at movies and TV is so important is because it's such a big part of everybody's life. Like everybody has a favorite show or favorite movie or, you know, the, the stuff that they watch that they love. And so having the folks who make the culture that we love, uh, having them so involved and often nudged by the people in their life to, to come out and make a statement I think that was so important. Okay, so does everyone know that when I'm not a podcaster, I'm actually writing academic scholarship, teaching in the university, and just doing all my queer male scholarly inquiries and analyses. So I am so excited to be talking about one of my favorite academic publishers, Broadview Press. They are an independent academic publisher. They publish in the humanities. Um, they produce high quality, pedagogically useful books for university and college classrooms. But as you'll soon learn, they also publish for literary enthusiasts and literature lovers. So they're always publishing with an eye towards diversity. There's so many titles from female authors, from writers of color. And for example, in the fall, we had on Ann Stevens on our podcast. So listen to that episode where she talked all about literary theory and criticism. And as you'll hear, she explains why literary theory is not, imp not important only to university scholars and to students of literature, but also to those arts and culture lovers out there, which all of you are a part of that community. So she discusses why watching Bridgerton actually requires a certain literary theory. And then we play a Wizard of Oz game where she analyzes the Wizard of Oz from all of these different schools of thought, including psychoanalysis, Marxism, feminist theory, queer theory. So 
What I love is that Broadview is offering 20% off with the code Ivory Tower. So head on over to their website and you will get 20% off with the code Ivory Tower. And if you haven't listened to our most recent episode with Jeffrey Weinstock, who wrote Pop Culture for Beginners, yes, the first ever university analysis of pop culture, which is really resonating with me since you all know I'm a huge Real Housewives fan. But also he wrote The Mad Scientist Guide to Composition. So I know so many of you out there teach composition or need more writing tips. Jeffrey Weinstock just came on the podcast. Listen to our interview with him. And again, 20% off all Broadview Press texts. Use the code Ivory Tower. Head over to their website. The link is in our episode notes. Enjoy your reading. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. You know, I'm thinking specifically of um, after the one round of uh, legal hearings, uh, Dustin Lance Black wrote a play, a stage play, about the court case. And there was a big fundraiser benefit, one in Los Angeles and one in New York, really star-studded. I mean, there was Martin Sheen and George Clooney and Brad Pitt and George Takei, Jesse Tyler Ferguson, um, Morgan Freeman, uh, John Lithgow, uh, Yardley Smith, you know, big, important, famous names, people that you just want to read news about uh, because they're attached to the movies and film that 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 you like. So they were they participated in this reading of this play and just having those folks involved in making making noise about why this was an important cause. Boy, that really brought it to a lot of people. Um, you know, we, we we know from working in activism that one of the most effective ways to win people over and to show them why a cause is important is for it to be personal. And I think having familiar celebrity faces express their enthusiasm for a topic made it personal. So anyway, this is a very long answer to your question. No, and no, but it's I, important. I, but I think, no, I I don't think there is as much momentum uh, in pop culture behind the issues that are important today, particularly around transgender um, equality and liberation. Well, and it seems like what you're saying is those with access to power and privilege, especially in terms of the film and TV industry, um, even her name was... Was it Edith Windsor? Yeah. Yes. Is like the one who really, that was the Supreme Court case to get gay marriage. But yeah, that was I one think, of the big was ones. it, yeah, wasn't it all about a state? It was her estate or something about the rights of her wife who had passed away or her partner. Mm -hmm. And then now she wasn't eligible to the rights. Um, yeah, it was a really heartbreaking story, as it often is a couple that was together for decades and Legally, they were married in Canada. They got they went to Canada, got married. And when they came back to the U.S., the federal government didn't recognize that they were they had the certificate. 
So that's what set off uh, part of the litigation. And it, it took, there were a lot of pieces of lawsuit and a lot of lawsuits in different states and a lot of separate cases that sometimes got combined. Uh, and through a lot of people's work over a long period of time, um, it, you know, eventually we we got to where we wanted to be. But, uh, you know, you're, you're right to bring up Edie as, as one of the most important people involved there because she had such a great story and it was so relatable and it was so understandable. This lovely woman just wants to have her relationship recognized and to be treated fairly, to be treated like everybody else under the law. I, you know, what could be what could be more gettable than that? Yeah, but she also had access to privilege in a way. Well, she certainly did. Yeah. Because of her wealth, right? She certainly was not the only person. Like there were many, you know, thousands and thousands of couples in the same position. Uh, and I think it's to her credit that she was, you know, recognized that she had the ability to make a difference and and went for it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, and I think that that's I'm pretty sure she was from New York or she was in New York City. Um, yeah, I believe that's correct. Okay, so like, and she was in had a milieu of friends who were in the industry of like um, exposing what was happening. So, yeah, I mean, it's a sh that's why it's so important about like Laverne Cox speaking out about transgender issues and mm -hmm. like what just happened with uh, Dylan Mulvaney and the day 365 show. Like it really does matter mm -hmm. to, cause so many people don't know transgender people on a day-to-day -day basis. So like, that's where your work of the film industry. Um, I mean, it's interesting. You didn't stay in Los Angeles, especially because of your film storytelling background is there a reason did you get tired of the artificiality like does that actually exist <laughs> yeah well you know one of the big one of the big things was the weather i'm just not a desert person and so ah. there was that and also just getting around i don't i'm not a car person i was I, mm -hmm. I bike everywhere and that's not always comfortable to do in los angeles um and it's one of the reasons that seattle really spoke to me also you know i just I like the rainy weather. My partner and I both, yeah. we like it rainy and cold and, you know, we like to bike, we like to walk. And people here, um, there's a casualness that uh, I found a bit lacking in Los Angeles where often you have to look your best at all times, uh, or at least the expectation is um, uh, a little more, I don't know, there, like you said, there's, I wouldn't call it artificial, but I would mm -hmm. say that presentation was important in a way that I found kind of exhausting. Yeah. Which and yeah. I, now it sounds like I'm insulting Seattle, but literally I'm sitting here in sweatpants right now. Uh, <laughs> that's what I found. You know, I'd, I'd like to live in a city where people go out of the house in boots and sweatpants and, uh, you know, they've got their yeah. knit hat and scarf uh, rather yeah. than, you know, it's, it's all got to be Dior. Well, like what I love about New York City is I feel there's all variations. Like, mm -hmm. As long as you just own your authenticity in New York, that's it's the bluntness. I appreciate that. I think we have a lot of family friends, a few who had moved to mm -hmm. Orange County or the LA area. So like I would like go there to visit. And I love the shore the beaches. I'm always mm -hmm. a beach person though. So like I would probably want to like live more um in uh Malibu or sure. you know, just like yeah. get me to Down the water. Venice. Yeah, Venice or, I mean, Newport, but I've, you know, heard some things about Newport. It's cookie cutter-ish, but who knows? Well, and good luck uh, getting anybody to visit you down there. Oh, uh, that's true. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> oh, well, I think that, um, 
you know, the authenticity is so important to me. Mm -hmm. And L.A. is really a suburban, in my opinion, it's a suburban city. Like it's has all the things the city has, but you just need, like you said, access to a car and then you're stuck in traffic. It's mm -hmm. it's an interesting car yeah. culture, but I heard they're working on some transit. Um, I did recently, though, go to San Francisco and fell in love with that city. I think San Francisco's it's great. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I have all the all the best to say about San Francisco. I'll have to visit Seattle. I've never been there. Um, I'm a fan. I like it a lot. Unfortunately, Seattle and San Francisco, both similarly pleasant cities. Also, unfortunately, uh, similarly expensive. Uh, it's yeah. not it's not a not an easy place to find a deal. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you're talking to me who's on Long Island where <laughs> everything. The coasts are expensive, um, but you yeah, don't miss like, no, no, there's yeah. no such thing as a cheap city anymore. No, but you don't miss the Northeast. You know, there are times when I do, I miss, I miss the snow. Sometimes, you know, we'll get one snowstorm a year if we're lucky in Seattle. And I do miss, like you were saying, like that um, straight to the point, blunt, fast talking. I got someplace to be. I will say the thing that drives me nuts about Seattle is people stand on the entire escalator and I'm like, you guys, I know, look, I know that there are lots of arguments about what's more efficient and I don't really care. I just like walking and I want to keep moving. I don't like to stand still. I guess that's very New York of me. Um, and it versus here in Seattle where everybody seems to be a little more relaxed. But um, gosh, I, I just I wish people would walk on the escalators or at least stand to the side. Uh, yeah, yeah, I guess that's I the like, one thing I miss about the Northeast. Yeah, yeah. And New Yorkers are friendly. Like mm -hmm. I do, well, I'm saying that as someone who's basically now a New Yorker. Um, I'm friendly, but I do. I think it's just you you want to try to get to know a person deeply before you really trust them. So mm -hmm. um yes, I don't know. Now you're making me want to go to Seattle. I'll visit. I don't know. Portland. I've been interested in Portland. Um but, you know, back like with your TV and film, the YouTube's mm -hmm. recaps, the analysis you've done. Um, we talked about your early beginning with the traditional marriage video. But yeah. like, how did the idea start to come where you were actually going to dissect, say, Modern Family or Bewitched or like you've done the gay, the queerest vampires recently, which I thought mm -hmm. was a great film um a great video of yours and the like gay hitchcock yeah how did how did you plan all this out well it was always something that was that was kind of part of my i don't know i don't want to say dna but it's something that's always kind of been a piece of me is really loving movies and tv and stories and books and plays and just entertainment and culture for one thing because it's just fun to watch a story but also, I think it's such an important way to, you know, to to make it less dessert and more vegetables. I think it's a really important way for people to connect to each other and understand each other and to advance the, you know, I don't know, the, the, the human project, to, to advance humanity, to, you know, I think that happens when we communicate and understand each other. And one of the most effective ways to do that is by telling stories. Hi, this is Andrew. So... You know, when I'm not here in the Ivory Tower boiler room, sometimes I'm actually invited to be on other podcasts as a guest. Well, there is one podcast run by Christian Garcia 
and um, his co-host, Nate, that I absolutely love. It is called That Old Gay Classic Cinema. So calling all you classic cinema fans out there and those who love queer theme cinema, which I think there's a lot of you who are listening right now where you've uh, perked up. So follow them on Instagram at That Old Gay Classic Cinema. The first ever episode I was featured as a guest, it's The Sound of Music. I got to talk about being Captain Von Trapp in high school, and it's just such an exciting conversation. They've also featured discussions about Gone with the Wind, The Wizard of Oz, which features guests from uh, the podcast The Garland Gab and Down the Yellow Brick Pod. There is a deep dive of Cinderella, and recently they had an episode on the film Giant starring Elizabeth Taylor, Rock Hudson, and James Dean. And actually, one of the uh, guests, Lauren Randall, I know from Stony Brook University's PhD English department. So shout out, Lauren. Um, you can listen to That Old Gay Classic Cinema on Apple, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. It's definitely such a great listen. So why not listen to it after you listen to this current episode on the Ivory Tower Boiler Room? Hey, Ivory Tower Boiler Room listeners and true crime friends. You've heard me gush over this incredible woman and her beautiful products. I'm talking about Mandy Made It. Mandy makes customized and original crochet and cre-cut goods. They are the perfect, unique, one-of-a-kind gift for literally anyone in your life. And she makes incredible home decor. I still have my pumpkins that I put out every fall. I just love them. Check her out on Instagram at M-A-N-D-E-E Made It or search Mandy Made It on Facebook. To order, just slide into her DMs. And if you mention the Ivory Tower Boiler Room, you will receive a free personalized gift with your first order. So... Go on Instagram and look up at Mandy Made It, and Mandy is spelled M-A-N-D-E-E. -E. Again, her handle is at Mandy Made It, Mandy spelled M-A-N-D-E-E, -E, and order today. And so you might just enjoy like Interview with the Vampire or Modern Family or Seinfeld or what, you know, I've done a lot of videos about stuff that people love, the pop culture. I try to focus on stuff that's um, made a difference in a lot of people's lives. And so those things are very easy to enjoy. And I think under the under the surface, and this is what I try to get to is, is yeah, you, these things are great. And, and you are correct. You are right for loving, you know, whatever it is, Modern Family or Robin Hood or, you know, all, whatever your passion is. Uh, good, it's good to love that stuff. And also, Here's something really special about it that you might not have discovered uh, or might not have noticed. And I want to tell you the, the behind the scenes story or the context of what was going on when it was made. And so I think, you know, to answer your question, that really got started when I was thinking about the Golden Girls. I was doing a full rewatch of the Golden Girls start to finish, and which I think is a great way, you know, very, very valuable use of time. But, it, you know, and it really was for me because it really inspired me to think about, you know, I got to one of the episodes where there's a queer character and that really got me thinking about, boy, that must have been difficult to do at the time. It was like 1984 or five. How did they get away with that? Why did they do that then? 
And so I started, you know, I was already making videos about what was happening with gay political culture. And so I wanted to bring in the pop culture that was that was connected to that, because obviously everything is political in some way. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I was just curious about what were the what were the politics of making an episode of the Golden Girls? So I made a video about that. Um, people really seem to enjoy it. And that has evolved over the years to um, be a much more, you know, back then it was just something I was doing because I liked it. And now it's become something that I like and I am really focusing and planning a lot more, uh, I don't know, deliberately, diligently. I've got a whole schedule of topics I want to do. People send me suggestions. I'm very lucky. People now send me clips of stuff that I've never seen before. And I love that when people are like, hey, check this thing out. Uh, somebody just mm -hmm. turned me on to um, this show that was made in the 80s or maybe it was the 90s in like Appalachia. It was or Appalachia. It was a gay couple who had a home improvement show on a local PBS station um, like 30 years ago. And so I've been trying to dig up episodes of that and, and watch this thing, you know, that who knew that this was that this existed? Um, you know, so anyway, um, now I, I'm really delighted that what I'm making has resonated with folks. I'm working on a video right now about George Takei uh, and his whole history. I mean, talk about political, his whole history and, and from being a struggling actor to really using his platform to make the world a better place, to bring about the, the future that he helped create on, on Star Trek, um, using his platform to you know, advocate for reparations for Japanese Americans, uh, to advocate for marriage equality, uh, to speak out on behalf of marginalized groups. Uh, I, I just, I, I have a lot of admiration for George. So that's one of the videos that I'm working on now because I, I want people to know about how cool this, this stuff that you love is cool for reasons beyond what you're even aware of. Yeah, well, and you have over 220,000 YouTube subscribers, which is not mm -hmm. easy. I mean, it's been seven years. So I always say, right, you got to just keep going day by day. Mm -hmm. um, it doesn't happen instantly. Um, I mean, I guess there are the viral TikTokers, but to sustain it doesn't usually happen. Um, but like, I'm curious, do you hear from the talent? Like, would you hear from a George Takei? Do you hear from the actors that you cover? Yeah, I would love that. I mean, honestly, to be perfectly honest, my my dream is for George to reach out to me or for just someone on his team to be like, hey, good video. Thanks. That actually does happen from time to time. Uh, I did a video about the nanny and um, Fran Drescher retweeted it. And she Aww. you know, had some very kind words about how what an honor it was to be recognized for, you know, the the great work that the nanny that that show did. Uh, featuring queer characters repeatedly uh, over its run when a lot of other shows were not brave enough to do that. Um, so, you know, she she was very vocal about uh, appreciating my work, which just feels so great. I, it makes me so happy. Um, and, you know, a lot of the stuff that I cover, um, the the folks sadly aren't around anymore. You know, I did one about Farley Granger, who was an actor in a bunch of Hitchcock films. He's no longer with us. Uh, but, uh, you know, then I'm I'm also working on a video about Norman Lear. Norman is in the book that is that I wrote that's about to come out. Uh, I was very fortunate that I was able to interview him for the book. I got to speak to Norman Lear and I asked him some questions about All in the Family. I mean, we're talking about a show that was on 50 years ago. And so his this is literally half a lifetime ago for him. And so his his memory of it needed a little jump jumpstart. Uh, you, you know, I asked him a question about an episode 
Um, and he said, just remind me what what was the what was the story of that one? Because, you know, this guy's made hours, like hundreds of hours of television. Mm -hmm. And so I described the plot of this episode to him. I couldn't believe what was happening at the time. I was like, I can't believe I'm giving a plot synopsis to Norman Lear. Uh, and so I give him the plot synopsis and there's a moment of silence. And on the other end of the phone, he says, boy, what a delight to hear it described. And, you know, just hearing that he loves he loves television uh, as much as I do and as much as the viewers do. Uh, it just feels it, th there's a really warm feeling to, um, you know, connecting with the with the makers and the fans. And I, I really hope that I can be a bridge between those groups. Yeah, well, and it reminds me of when. Uh, we had done a whole Carrie musical dissection here and uh, Betty Buckley like shared mm. it on her Instagram and yeah, talent, it's, it, it really is heartwarming. And um, when you're connected to the performers and those who carry the stories, um, mm. but something I'm really curious about is with your decision process, it does seem like you um, are careful in terms of the content. Like, have you gone back and forth in your head about how explicit, especially because you're on YouTube and YouTube is very restrictive of uh, anything graphic with mm -hmm. especially sexuality um, and cursing, <laughs> uh, you know, here I can curse a storm up uh, like I can talk about pornography scholarship, which I do um, in terms of academia, but like you wouldn't really be able to do that in a YouTube space. Like you're not going to start looking at the golden age of porn with gay no. pornography. Much as I'd like to I actually have on, on my bookshelf behind me, a book about the history of beefcake magazines. And boy, I'd, I'd love to dive into that at some point, but also I have to be very careful about, you know, talking about something, you know, a topic like Bob Miser, for example. Uh, mm -hmm. So, you know, who makes very explicit content. But, you know, fortunately, generally, my subjects are not that, I, I wouldn't say they're not that controversial because sometimes they are controversial. You know, I, I have videos where I talk about the HIV epidemic or, you know, transgender equality, which, you know, is still frustratingly controversial, though it shouldn't be. And so anyway, um, sometimes there will be a topic that involves, say, there might be some, you know, a, a topless female nudity in, in something. I, I actually, when I did my um, video about the history of queer representation in vampire stories, I think there might have been some, um, there's there's a lot of lesbian vampires, and I think there was some toplessness in that. And so sometimes I do have to be careful. I'll just kind of stick a, a YouTube logo over if if I think some exposed flesh is maybe too much for <laughs> YouTube's rules. Or if someone uses language that I think is maybe a little too harsh, I'll occasionally have to bleep something out and I'll put like a little YouTube logo over their mouths. Um, one of the strange things that I do have to be cautious about is firearms. Uh, if a gun appears in something, uh, I will often either blur it out or cover it up with a YouTube logo or crop it so it's not there. Um, and, you know, I understand the concern. I understand why that's, you know, YouTube is cautious about the use of their platform. Uh, on the other hand, it can be very frustrating sometimes. Um, because it is very opaque, you know, we're in a lot of jeopardy. No, no, I don't know about jeopardy, but it's it's a precarious tightrope to be beholden to a tech platform that ultimately is kind of a closed black box and an opaque window where you can't really see what the rules are. And, 
you know, you gotta kind of cross your fingers and hope that they that they don't mind what you're making and that there's not some sort of regime change that uh, changes its mind about what's acceptable. Yeah, well, and have you covered Queer as Folk? I'm trying to remember. I did a while back. Um, Queer as Folk did an episode that it was actually one of the first and still one of the very few episodes of television that featured a pride event uh, for some reason. That is just not something that's appeared on television very much. I think Queer as Folk was if not the first, one of the first American shows to show a Pride event, uh, at least a scripted show. Obviously, it was on the you know news and documentary stuff. Anyway, so I did a video about what is the purpose of Pride? Why do we celebrate it? What does Queer as Folk have to say about it? And uh, why was it important for this show to to show people what what a Pride event is? And, and you know what criticisms can we level? Because that was a very white depiction of Pride. It was not as inclusive as I think we would like, um, as as we would want Pride to be. So anyway, yeah, so Queer's Folk did, did come up in that context. Yeah, because I'm just thinking of how um, Queer's Folk was just such an entry mm. way for so many uh, gay white men, bi white men, um, mm -hmm. like to see ourselves represented. I mean, I was encountered it when I was coming out, but I also had Degrassi, like grew up with Degrassi, and that also had a lot of, LGBTQ, mostly gay storylines. Now, I'm modern. assuming that's yeah. that's the new Degrassi, not the new we, Degrassi, we, yeah. the next generation. Oh, um, yeah. So, I, you know, I hear Degrassi and I'm thinking about the show from the 80s. But of course, I mean, and what a great example. You know, I, I love that is something that has had a life for folks of multiple generations. That, that, that really, truly makes me happy. Yeah, no, it was a wonderful show. And um but like I also grew up with Modern Family, Desperate Housewives. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've always being an Andrew, I always sympathized with Andrew from Desperate Housewives, which is just I don't know if you've done that storyline, but it was I have wild. not a complicated character. A, a really Very a complicated, complicated show. Yeah. yeah, yeah, they're all were just complicated. Mm -hmm. um, but it was I still think it was one of the highlights of um network tv like back in the like remembering everyone programming their clocks to like get ready to watch um yeah. oh, we haven't had that anymore yeah. like we don't yeah what a shame you know I, appointment television has gone away for a little bit i think there's still a chance it might come back uh, you know we had it briefly with game of thrones until everyone um got, got, i think that might have put a, a a nail in the coffin i don't think it's it's a permanent nail i think maybe the 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 zombie of uh, appointment television may rise again, yeah. but you know something that is really hard to appreciate now that we're in this um, at for the moment golden age. Although I think it's becoming a bit tarnished of streaming, um, that there was a time when you had three choices: you had ABC, CBS, and NBC, and maybe PBS if you were a nerd, and and that that was it. And so you know. 20 million people on an average night would watch uh, a sitcom and then we'd all be talking about it the next day. That doesn't really exist at this moment with a few exceptions, you know, stranger things happens and people want to talk about that, or at least they want to talk about Kate Bush for a week or, um, you know, I'm trying to think of like the white shows. Lotus. Yeah. For me, it oh, was yeah. the white Lotus. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. And that was or, incredible. That was a great season. I can't believe I forgot the name of the show. What's the show with, with uh, F, F Marie Abraham. Is that White Lotus? No, it's the one yeah, with Jennifer Coolidge. Yeah, okay, yes. That was White Lotus. Okay, mm -hmm. yes, yes. So, yeah, Aubrey Plaza. Mm -hmm. um, the second season became a real um, 
conversation. But right, HBO has done that a lot. Boardwalk Empire, Sopranos, yeah. especially mm -hmm. Sopranos. Um, Sex in the City and it's dead. Sex in the City. Yeah, for some reason, HBO has, they've gotten that fandom. Um, I think we're about to see a shift. I think, you know, especially with, I think one of the canaries in the coal mine there is the removal of series from streaming platforms and the, you know, Netflix losing subscribers recently. Uh, and, you know, that 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 growth is not going to continue. We were in a real bonanza for a while where even um, ideas like Quibi seemed like something that could that could work. And I think um, that House of Cards to, you know, to make a reference, I think that House of Cards is starting to uh, blow over. And it would not surprise me if we see a lot of consolidation. And this is getting very like inside the business. No, no, I like inside the business. Yeah. <laughs> I think we're going to see some consolidation. I think, you know, some of the more obscure ones, like, I don't know, Tubi or whatever, you know, the things that like somebody, sometimes somebody will say, oh, it's streaming on this website. And I'm like, what on, is that a website? Is that a brand of shoe? What is that website? So I think the smaller ones are going to get gobbled up by the bigger ones. And honestly, it wouldn't surprise me if we go back to a time when, you know, it's, time shifting is still available and so you can stream a show whenever you want but i think your choices are going to be much more limited and so i don't think we're always going to have the situation where it's like you know your friends are watching this like three season epic show on netflix that you haven't even heard of i i think that window that 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 lifestyle uh is going to be a very 2007 to 2023 sort of phenomenon and i think mm. Um, I think we're going to slide back a little bit to what it was like to grow up in the, you know, the first half century of broadcast television. That's my prediction. Who knows? I, you know, I'm, I'm wrong about everything. So I don't know. No, no. I like this prediction. Well, should we switch over to mm. the series of Paris, Matt? Yes. Yes. So we're going to do a little show swap and yeah. <laughs> you're, you're going to be my guest on my, on my podcast. Yeah, I'm excited. Well, hopefully we'll continue this conversation because I kind of I need to know um, your opinion about LGBTQ narratives right now in TV mm. and film, because uh, I'm still trying to find I'm still trying to find a few TV shows to latch on to. Mm -hmm. And it's tough. <laughs> yeah. Right well, I, OK. I, you know, let's talk about what you like and I'll give you some recommendations. So we'll, we'll head over. We'll head down into the sewers of Paris, which is my podcast and uh, get that topic covered. OK. Hopefully I don't get too dirty swimming over. <laughs> oh, that's part of the fun. OK. I'll journey so right now. <laughs> Welcome to the spring season. This is Andrew from the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Make sure that you always listen to our new episodes on Mondays. Are you following us on social media? No? Oh, you need to. Follow the Ivory Tower Boiler Room on TikTok and Instagram at Ivory Tower Boiler Room and on Twitter at Ivory Boiler Room. Hey, true crime friends. This is Mary DePippi, host of True Crime in Academia. Don't forget, episodes come out on Fridays at 7.30 p.m. And you can also follow True Crime and Academia on social media. On Instagram and TikTok, we're at True Crime and Academia. And on Twitter, at TC in Academia. And Mary and I, we need some coffee. We need to keep a pep in our step, and we just need that caffeine. So do you we know sound we have energetic. We're not. 
we're tired. Yeah, yeah, no, this is all coffee. So the Ivory Tower Boiler Room Cafe is our Patreon, Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Ivory Tower Boiler Room. $5 a month unlocks so many bonus episodes. So for the Ivory Tower Boiler Room, you get Mary and I, our exclusive winter arts and culture hot takes, including what do we think about Prince Harry, Pamela Anderson, where are Oscars predictions right? Why does James Cameron have to make Avatar movies? We want more Titanic. Okay, and also I dissect straight gym bro culture with Dominic Jaynes. Why are people afraid of sodomy? You get all the uncensored conversations on Patreon. That's where our bonus episodes are. And I know, Mary, what do you have on Patreon? Oh, we have a lot right now. I cover cases that I would not cover on the podcast. So if you want to access those, like Andrew said, go to patreon.com slash ivory tower boiler room. So you can see episodes from true crime, like the dating game killer, AKA Rodney Alcala, or you can see the live video interviews that we have done. Most recently, I interviewed not one, but two forensic psychologists. And get this, I only released 30 minutes of the actual audio to the podcast. So that means the whole extra 30 minutes is on Patreon just for some Wait, an extra 30 minutes? An See, extra 30 just for minutes. a cup of coffee, everyone. Okay, well, I also want to shout out our amazing internship team here. So our interns include Andrea, Sarah, Caitlin, Rosie, and Sheila. A round of applause to all of them. We thank you. They keep the ivory tower boiler room literally going. Uh, so Mary and I are so appreciative. Thanks to our audience. And we can't wait to see you back here. Bye, everyone. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. LGBT stories are universal, but each one speaks to the individual heart and soul of the writer telling it. Do you have a story to tell? Have you been moved by an LGBT book, film, painting, television show, or other form of media? If so, the Gay and Lesbian Review wants to hear from you. The GNLR believes in bringing awareness to queer art and artists through reviews, commentary, and thought pieces in which the author relates their personal lives to a particular piece of art, a novel, a movie, or what have you. In addition to the articles published in the print magazine, the GNLR also publishes articles on its blog, as well as personal essays on its popular Here's My Story section. This allows people like you to share their own experiences with our readers. To learn more about submitting either to the print or the online edition of the GNLR, visit georeview.org. That's G-L-R-E-V-I-E-W dot O-R-G. And scroll down to the bottom of the page to find a link to their writer's guidelines. If you have questions, email me at stephen.hemrick at georeview.org. The GNLR can't wait to see what you have to say.